This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. quality in upstate New York is currently at an all-time low. It's creating an unhealthy and in some cases hazardous atmosphere. This week, we are literally breathing in the news. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over that and the other top headlines. Wildfires in Quebec and southerly winds have made things very, very difficult and frankly dangerous for everyone. Columnist Chris Churchill joins us to share his thoughts on the latest developments in the will the capital region get a Costco saga. The tax rates are too high. That might be a valid argument, but they should come down for everybody, not for we shouldn't be going around making exemptions whenever whenever a developer requests. And we'll talk about some groundbreaking research out of the University at Albany that could be a big help for investigators at crime scenes. If it turns out that the fingerprint of that criminal is in the database, then you get a hit and you know, oh, this is the person who robbed me. And you can correlate their fingerprint to the identity of the person. Turns out that we can do something very similar for plants. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union subscriber today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. Okay, let's discuss now, as always, what appeared in the Times Union and on timesunion.com and our social channels this week. All right, we're here with Times Union Editor-in-Chief Casey Seiler. As we are every week, we're going to go over the top headlines. Let's start with uh, the one that's literally enveloping us. We cannot get away from it, any of us. Let's talk about the air quality. What's going on? Yeah, wildfires in Quebec and southerly winds have made things very, very difficult and frankly dangerous for everyone, but especially for people with respiratory problems or related uh, chronic health issues. Anything that involves you breathing, Jess, as 
uh, the smoke has descended, has spread across a vast swath of upstate, virtually all of upstate New York. In New York City, especially on Wednesday, anybody who has been on social media has seen literally apocalyptic photos um, showing exactly how hazy it is. Everything has kind of this umber or, you know, ochre color to it. It's very disturbing. Look, these are our lightning set fires, according to what what I've read about these wildfires in Quebec. But of course, they've been exacerbated by extraordinarily dry conditions. Even as we are speaking now on Thursday morning, most of the air quality um, metrics around the capital region and down in the Hudson Valley are unhealthy for all. You know, in other words, not just unhealthy for people with compromised uh, pulmonary systems, respiratory systems, but for everyone. That's very disturbing. Now, as we sit here, it's unclear how long it's going to be until the situation resolves. The latest models suggest that Friday morning will bring some relief, but that conditions will not get back to a state of normality until end of the weekend or even the beginning of next week. It's very bad. And I can tell you, based on our web traffic to a feature that we literally just happened to launch earlier this week, which is our interactive air quality model. Yes. People are very, very interested in this topic. It quite literally affects everything you do. You can feel it. You, you can feel it in the back of your throat. You can feel it underneath your fingernails. It's nasty. It's everywhere. Pun intended, it is unclear when this situation will resolve, but go check out timesunion.com for that interactive air quality map, as well as things you can do to protect yourself and keep safe uh, until this passes. Um, and I also wanted to point out earlier when you mentioned the the uh, the situation in New York City, uh, one thing that has been keeping some of us entertained indoors is some of the memes that have sprung up around this. And one in particular that kind of photoshopped the shadow of a giant kaiju or a uh, Godzilla in the in the background, which uh, really lends to the post-apocalyptic feel of it all. Yeah, look, as a as a major fan of uh, Blade Runner and its sequel, it's quite disturbing. There's a whole sequence in Blade Runner 2049 where, uh, you know, the main character goes to a Las Vegas that has been rendered uninhabitable by this kind of particulate matter. And it looks exactly like New York City on on Wednesday. Wow. That is both fascinating and disturbing. <laughs> All right. Well, stick stick by, as I said, timesunion.com for the latest there and how it's affecting us. Let's move on to the story, the ongoing story of the migrants that have been sent upstate by New York City. New York City is now suing nearly half of the state's counties over their attempts to keep out these migrants. That includes several local counties. So uh, tell us what's going on there. As you know, to kind of take these in in two parts, this is um, uh, caused by New York City becoming overwhelmed by asylum seekers, by migrants. Um, as we have been discussing in recent weeks, uh, the city has been transporting busloads of those migrants um, upstate in many cases, paying for their lodging. But of course, it has caused great controversy. And the city has now brought suit saying that the use of states of emergency by some county executives and county leaders to bar uh, these migrants from traveling upstate 
is um, illegal. Now, it's interesting because in the capital region and elsewhere, the lawsuit names Rensselaer County and County Executive Steve McLaughlin, Saratoga County, Schoharie County, but not Albany County. Albany County has put its own uh, state of emergency in place that does not outright bar these uh, migrant transports, but does demand that the city communicate in order to better organize and, and coordinate with the city to make sure that the proper services are in place. So in other words, Albany County is basically saying, look, we want to help you, but please let's have a system in place to do this. Last week, there was a lot of static and complaints from County Executive Dan McCoy that the city was not living up to its part of that compact. If you were the city, then said, okay, fine, sorry, we'll do a better job. This lawsuit is is definitely taking a different tack. Meanwhile, uh, earlier this week, a federal judge determined that there had been a discriminatory motive in place by the uh, executive orders, the states of emergency that were put in place by the leaders of Rockland and Orange County. And he determined that they were unconstitutional and really wrapped both county executives down there for what he said were, you know, racially charged and uh, clearly discriminatory statements um, that basically suggested that these migrants were a, a dangerous horde that included child rapists and and what have you. So that that played into the judge's decision. But this matter continues to um, stay in the news, and I don't see that abating anytime soon. Indeed, I suspect we'll be talking about it on future episodes of this podcast coming up. Uh, Lastly, I want to touch on a certain local semi-professional sports team that has been making a lot of news for us in the last two months. What is the latest with the Albany Empire Arena League football team? We had some developments there this week, some videos that came to us, things of that nature. So what's going on over there? Well, Jess, it was an interesting weekend um, because just, I think, was it a day or maybe two after the team announced that it had hired its latest head coach after the departure of, uh, and I'm probably going to get the sequence wrong, I believe it's her third head coach at this point. And then on Saturday morning, we received the tip that Antonio Brown had been asked to leave the Holiday Inn Express on Broadway in downtown Albany. Uh, the allegations were uh, related to, you know, bad behavior, you know, smoking pot in a hotel room that you're not supposed to smoke pot in, even in these days of legalized cannabis use and loud music, and that uh, the police had been called and Brown left. No charges were ever filed. When Mark Singles, our outstanding sports writer, asked AB for um, comment, and we have to remember that he is uh, the majority, like a 95% owner of the team, and also someone who has said that he is thinking of playing for the Empire. We will see if that actually happens. Antonio Brown sent a brief video to Mark, texted it to him, that appears to have been shot just after AB was kicked out of the hotel. Just got kicked out the Holiday Inn Marriott. It's out of trespassing. I've been here for like 60 days. You know, it's just a part of the movie. They're trying to build a young black entrepreneur, a young owner. 
he bemoans the fact that they claim that he was trespassing and basically saying, geez, this is, this is what happens when you're a young black entrepreneur trying to, uh, to get a business started up. I'm, I am not exactly sure if that is the case, but we shall see. The day after this story broke, that new head coach announced that he had decided not to take the job and that this incident had indeed played into that decision. You know, the idea that there that there is some turbulence, believe it or not, Jess, in ownership, perhaps at the Albany Empire Arena League football team. And with that, the team announced that a player who retired on Friday would be the interim head coach and will be taking over. The Empire are scheduled to play their next game uh, down in Florida on Friday. They are coming off a long, I think it's five games now, a losing streak. While I, I was asked by someone when how long this head coach will last, and I said I would not want to hold my breath, especially under these conditions, Jess. <laughs> but we shall see. We shall see indeed. And he has been keeping our sports department very busy. Our sports department has been... Killing it, though, uh, across the board. So be sure to check that out on timesunion.com. There's much more news than just what's happening with the Albany Empire. All right, Casey, thank you so much. And we'll check back in with you next week. Thanks, Jess. As always, you can learn more about all of the topics and issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com or on any of our social channels. All right, for several years now, we've been hearing and reporting news that a Costco wholesale is coming to town, specifically on a highly coveted plot of land in Gilderland near Crossgates Mall. For years, though, legal wrangling between the town, Albany County, and residents has kept the proposed project in a seemingly perpetual limbo. Concerns about the project ranged from potential disruption of traffic patterns to fears of harming the neighboring Pinebush Preserve. But last month, the Gilderland Zoning Board of Appeals approved a special permit. It clears a big hurdle for the massive retailer and its IDA to forge ahead. Times Union columnist Chris Churchill tackled the topic of Costco's fate in the capital region this week, and he joins us now to share his views on the matter. So why did you write about Costco this week? I wrote about it because the Costco developer, the company that's building the potential store, which is Pyramid Companies, has kind of dramatically increased the amount of money that they're seeking in, in, in tax exemptions. Um, they were seeking $400,000. Now they're seeking $2.1 Ooh, that's a big jump. It is a big jump. It's a huge jump. And uh, they're citing cost increases and, and other factors. But- I think as Rick Carlin originally reported in, in his story on this, uh, it's like a 440% increase, which is a pretty big jump. Yeah, as you said. And the taxpayers would have to shoulder that if they acquiesce to it, right? I mean, in a sense, or I mean, Pyramid would argue that there's no, the town is receiving no tax money in the project right now because it doesn't exist. So any money that comes in is a, is a net gain. They would gain more if without the exemption. But, you know, it, it is true that since <laughs> there is no Costco, there's no revenue coming in on it. That's the argument that developers always use, which begs the question of why we have these 
tax rates in place in the first place. They're, they're there to be paid. If you want to argue that the tax rates are too high, that might be a valid argument, but they should come down for everybody and not for, we shouldn't just be going around making exemptions whenever whenever a developer requests. Now, you call it a scam in your column. I mean, first of all, there's a little bit of maybe a bait and switch element here where they asked for a certain amount and then got everybody excited about the project, got the, the approvals they needed, and then kind of upped the amount. That That would be one element of it. I'm really talking about the broader scam of tax breaks for retail projects. You know, we're always told that these projects are good for the economy, that they increase the number of jobs, that they deserve the tax breaks because, you know, communities will see a benefit. And I think those are all untrue. And that's not just my opinion. I mean, economic study after economic study has shown that that's generally untrue. Retail projects don't really grow the size of a, a region's economic pie for the most part. Mm-hmm. They really only cannibalize existing businesses. You know, mm-hmm. not like a widget factory where you and I might open a factory, make a lot of widgets, sell them to people all over the world and bring new money to this region. A retail store like Costco doesn't do that. Hey, though, I think you came up with a good business plan for us. Maybe that's- Yeah, our- yeah. Well, probably not widgets. Maybe like- um, Thingamabobs? Painted rocks or something. <laughs> I can do. I can get behind that. That sounds yeah. like a good plan. Bring like cool faces on them and sell them to people all over the world. But you know, like then people would send us ten dollars for the rocks, and we'd hire a bunch of people, and then there'd be new money coming into this region. Mm-hmm. Costco will just take money out of the region, and that isn't necessarily an argument against Costco, but that's just kind of how retail works. There's only a certain amount of money in the pie, and they just—it's just how you divide it up, which stores get it. Now that you you mentioned that they try to make the argument that you know, this would be the only Costco in the region and it would draw people from outside the region into to come, you know, much like Trader Joe's attracts people from afar, you know, who don't have access to it. Partly the reason they have to make that argument is because the legislature only allows tax breaks for retail establishments under two conditions. One, they have to be destinations slash tourist attractions or they have to exist in a distressed area. And since Gilderland is not a distressed area, they have to argue that the Costco is a, a destination. And there are probably, as I said in the column, there probably is some truth to that. I'm sure that there would be people who would shop at the Costco from outside the area who don't who do not do their shopping in this vicinity at the moment. I'm having trouble wrapping my brain around the, the idea of a tourist destination, though. When I think of a tourist destination, I think of something like, um, I don't know, Jordan's Furniture out in eastern Massachusetts that has like roller coasters inside. <laughs> well, well, if you're shopping for furniture, you can hop on a roller coaster. Or the world's biggest Walmart, which would be very close to this Costco. Yeah. <laughs> and it would probably be hurt by it. So one tourist destination suffers at the hands of the other. I'm sure it would draw people. I don't know how far people would come, but I'm sure that there are there is a small number of people who would travel to the Costco and do their shopping there who don't shop in the capital region now. Even the, the company's own studies or study has shown that the overwhelming majority of people would be from this area. Th- they would be doing their shopping there instead of at Price Chopper, Walmart, you know, big box store of your of your choosing. This isn't a new. This isn't a new thing. I mean, we've been talking about Costco for years. The idea that. It's still going on. I mean, how many years has it been? Like at least a decade? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's part of the thing too, is like Costco wants to be in this region. I mean, the the pyramid company's representatives at a public hearing last week noted that this site is like one of the best 
best around, right? Which just speaks to the fact that someone will locate there whether or not there are tax breaks. You know, it's it's close to where 87 and 90 meet. It's close to the center of the region. It's definitely like a desirable place. So that, that, that kind of speaks to the falsehood. This may get a little confusing, but speaks to the falsehood of that argument we started with, which is that it's a, a benefit because there's nothing there now. Well, there will be something there eventually. They're not going to just let it sit fallow. But yeah, but also the fact that Costco has been talking about coming here for so long and there have been so many different kind of machinations around it suggests that they do really want to be here and they see they see this area as a someplace where they can make a lot of money, right? I mean, they're not coming as a charity. They're coming to make money. And I don't see any reason why they and the, the company that wants to build the store should, shouldn't pay what, you know, what the taxes say they should pay. Now, if you could put your futurist hat on, I've asked you this question before, and you've probably groaned before when I said this, but yeah. I mean, what do you see? What do you see happening in the future with this? It's cynic of me who would say that they will approve the tax breaks. If you, there are plenty of critics of IDAs and how they work, and part of that criticism will note that IDAs make their money sustain themselves by doing deals like this. They get a percentage of of the deal, so that or a fee from the deal. So they're inclined to always want to make the deals. You know, that's part of the problem with the system. You know, you have the Gilderland IDA, which is essentially like undercutting other IDAs or undercutting other businesses. Every town tends to have their own IDA. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so developers and businesses can kind of play them off each other and get the best tax break deal. Just it's kind of a similar in a way to how NFL teams play cities off each other to get the best stadium deal, you know, instead of a kind of a comprehensive, like regional approach to bringing Costco to the area, there's this kind of, well, if Gilderland doesn't do it, I bet you Colony will. And if Colony doesn't do it, I bet you, you know, Half Moon or Rensselaer County will. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just a, it's just a silly way to, to do economic development, especially for retail projects. Again, if it had been, if it was a rock factory or a button factory, it might be different. Because then it would at least, you could make the argument that it was growing the economy and creating jobs. You can't do that with this project. Well, you know, I'm saying I'm not I'm not against the rock project. So if you want to go in on that with me, everybody, you heard it right here. This is how it started. Yeah, we'll, we'll work on it. We'll come up. I shouldn't have gone public with the, such a brilliant idea so early. <laughs> Too fast. Someone's going to steal it. It's been done, right? The pet rock thing. Yeah, but, but have they been pet rocks with inspirational sayings on the back? I don't know. Uh, that's probably true. Yeah. After the break, marijuana and hemp are very similar. They're the same species, in fact. But how do you tell them apart, especially at a crime scene? A university at Albany chemistry professor explains her groundbreaking research. It's been 15 years since 12-year-old Jalique Rainwalker vanished. His disappearance from rural upstate New York was ruled a probable child homicide. But no one has ever been charged, and his body has never been found. This is Rainwalker, the Lost Boy. 
I'm Jessica Marshall. And I'm Wendy Lepertor. In this podcast from the Times Union, we'll take a deep dive into this mystery, the case of a missing child that has unsettled New York's capital region and beyond for more than a decade. Available now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Professor Robbie Musa has always been fascinated by plant molecules. Why and how plants make molecules, or biosynthesize them in biochemistry speak, and how they use them in very distinct ways, whether it's to enhance the environment around them, to create a defense mechanism, or some other impact. It is all fascinating to Professor Musa and it informs her groundbreaking work in the University at Albany's chemistry department. Recently, the United States Department of Justice awarded Professor Musa and her lab a sizable grant to develop a rapid field test that investigators can use at crime scenes to tell the difference between the still federally illegal marijuana and the very legal hemp plant. The two are from the same species, and they're very visually hard to tell apart. But get a look at their molecules, and it's a whole different story. I recently had a chance to talk to Professor Musa about her work. Here is part of our conversation. Can you briefly tell me, like, why you became interested in this this particular field within within chemistry? When I was growing up, which was in Ghana, in West Africa, I noted that uh, many people were treated for disease by visiting traditional healers. And I was fascinated by the difference between um, the science of medicine there and the science of medicine here. And here, when one is sick, one goes to a clinic or hospital, and there people are more likely to see a traditional healer but they would invariably in many cases get healed. And so I was fascinated by the prospect that there were molecules and plants that could affect healing. And I was interested in figuring out whether there were diseases that could potentially be cured by understanding what the molecules were in these plants that were responsible for their therapeutic effects. That's a wonderful segue into what we are primarily here to talk about today, which is your current research that um, is getting a nice boost. Um, let's talk about that then. One of the plants that has been in the news very frequently in the last several uh, years, decade, I don't know how long, forever, is, you know, marijuana and THC and, you know, things that are related to it. Now, obviously, marijuana is legal in New York now, but I guess the best way to start into this is to kind of tell me how you segued into this research, like what kind of led to the start of it. So it turns out that for millennia, human beings have been utilizing um, drugs to achieve altered states of consciousness. <laughs> and um, it turns out that the reason this happens is that there are molecules in these plants that have impacts on the central nervous system, the brain, and uh, have these psychoactive effects. There's a, they have a storied history, 
and in more modern times, by virtue of some of the negative impacts, particularly with regard to addiction, that governments all over the world have sought to uh, restrict uh, consumption of these because of their detrimental health impacts and, and the challenges that they pose to public health. But it turns out that while in any one country, there are typically only about 10 plant-based drugs that are scheduled or outlawed, there are over 400 plants that'll get you high. And when it comes to law enforcement, you cannot prosecute someone for, for example, being responsible for an overdose of a particular plant drug if you don't have a way to identify that drug because you know you could you could lock someone away for a very, very long time. And so you have to have a definitive means by which you can be very sure about what the substance is that either caused the person to overdose or caused them to die. Because of that, law enforcement has to have a way to figure that out. So they do have ways to figure it out, but right now they're not very efficient, right? Or they're so so it turns out that uh, law enforcement has very efficient methods for figuring this out. But there are some complications that have emerged. The challenge is that if you have an overdose of a plant drug that is not regulated, if you walk into the crime scene and you see a body, and you see some crumbled up leaves next to the body, and it turns out that those leaves are of a drug that hasn't been, that, that's not scheduled, you really can't prosecute anybody for that overdose death. We got into this because we had funding from the National Institute of Justice to look at a group of plants that the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime had designated as plants of concern to come up with ways in the laboratory that will allow law enforcement to quickly figure out what the species identity was of those crumbled up leaves or those dried up seeds and things that law enforcement might encounter. And in the course of developing that, we realized that we had developed a pretty good method by which you could readily distinguish simply based on what we call chemical fingerprint signatures of plants. That turns out that they're species specific so if you have a database of fingerprints, just like if you have a database of fingerprints and someone robs your house and you collect the fingerprints and you screen them in the database against the database, if it turns out that the fingerprint of that criminal is in the database, then you get a hit and you know, oh, this is the person who robbed me. And you can correlate their fingerprint to the identity of the person. Turns out that we can do something very similar for plants. <laughs> and so you need to first create a database of plant chemical fingerprints and then if you run, if you encountered some dried up roots or something in the context of a crime scene, then you can quickly get the fingerprint of that, screen it against the database of psychoactive plants, and da-da, you get uh, a hit and you know what the species is. So in the course of doing that, we realized that we might be able to apply that to distinguish between hemp and marijuana. And that's important because um, it turns out that hemp and marijuana are actually the same species, cannabis sativa. And so since they're the same species, how do you tell them apart? So how would, you know, you, you say you're developing a rapid test. How would that work? You know, somebody would be at a crime scene. Would You know, how would it work? Let's think about, for example, uh, the breathalyzer tests. 
you're on the highway, law enforcement sees somebody weaving and bobbing in their car, they pull the car over and they've got this nice little convenient task that a person can blow into. And uh, the technology has been pretty well worked out. The tests are accurate. So you can always do a confirmatory test where you send somebody to, you know, a, a, a medical facility so that they can actually utilize their blood to tell what the blood alcohol level is. But it turns out that the breathalyzer tests are pretty accurate. Those breathalyzer tests are field deployable tests. And uh, with minimal training, you can learn to use them if you're law enforcement and get pretty accurate results. If you are in the field and someone has a plant-based drug that you suspect might be cannabis sativa, well, you don't want to grab everything from the field that potentially might be cannabis sativa because you're just adding to the workload, perhaps unnecessarily, of the crime lab. And so it would be fantastic if there was a field deployable test that would give you accurate results. So there, there currently are tests that you can do in the field where you can take plant samples, add a little bit of this, add a little bit of that, shake it up, you get a particular result, but they're prone to false positives or false negatives. But the false positives are really problematic because you can actually, based on, on that probable cause, say, okay, well, it looks like uh, this. I got a positive test here, so we're going to arrest this person because they're possessing a big amount of this stuff, and it turns out that it's not marijuana at all. So it would be wonderful to have a field deployable test that is high accuracy and is fast. So can you talk a little bit about sort of the science? So the technology is based on the concept that these plant drugs, of course, contain molecules. The molecules of interest are primarily THC or tetrahydrocannabinol. Molecules love to interact with each other. And sometimes these interactions result in a color change. And so what we're doing are some uh, sophisticated mathematical simulations that allow us to better understand whether or not THC, the active ingredient, uh, the psychoactive ingredient in cannabis, will interact with a particular element in the periodic chart and whether that interaction will result in a color change. We're basically using theoretical calculations, mathematical simulations of the behavior of molecules to make predictions about which metals, when interacting with key molecules in a cannabis sample will give us a readout that can be readily registered with color or with a fluorescence response that is highly accurate and that could then be field deployable. How long does a research like this take? Uh, I would say that in two to four years, I'm hoping that it happens sooner, but I'm thinking that in two to four years, we should have something that's pretty robust and commercially available. That's exciting. I mean, it's not like the movies where it happens like, you know. Oh, yeah, it never happens but... that way. Yeah. <laughs> in the movies and on TV shows, it's a wonderful hook because, you know, in 45 minutes, they've solved the crime. They know what killed the person. And all these students rush to be chemistry majors. And we're happy to have them. But at some point, the news has to be broken that this is not going to happen in 45 minutes. You know, four years into your degree, you might have solved a problem. So <laughs> well, Hollywood is kind of both your best friend and your your constant like foil, right? Yes, exactly. And so it's giving them 
less than realistic expectations about the house. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. But we're here to make the the expectations more realistic, but also point out that there is the opportunity in this field to do so much good for the world. And good always typically takes a bit of time, especially if you want to be accurate. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram, or head on over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler, Chris Churchill, and Mark Singales for their contributions to this episode.